I trust uh, God will shed some light on the verses that we just sung as we come to God's Word this evening, and we now turn to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23, reading through into chapter 4 and verse 7. The reading is found, I believe, on page 1,237 of the large print, 974 of the regular print. Galatians 3, verse 23, through into chapter 4, and verse 7, and then one of our brothers amongst the elders will lead in prayer as uh, we prepare to come to hear God's word this evening. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise and I mean that the heir as long as he is a child is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So reads God's holy word. Our Heavenly Father, we come now to the preaching of your word. Father, there is no power more powerful than the preaching of your word. Father, it's the King of kings and the Lord of lords speaking through his servant, Father, accompanied by the work of your Spirit, Father, we pray that you would apply these words into our hearts, that, Father, we would ever be more transformed into the image of Christ, Father, that we would live our lives to your glory and honor. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we look at this passage this evening, and we do so during what is the 500th anniversary of the beginning just the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. When Pastor Bob asked me if I would speak tonight, try to find some connection to explain why you are choosing the passage under the guidance of God. So we come to this passage, and I'll explain why we do so. Sufficient to say, of course, that uh, there were numerous forerunners of the Reformation, and you can read do make opportunity to read about the Reformation during this 500th anniversary. One of those forerunners was John Wycliffe in the British Isles. Another was Jan Hus, 
what is now the Czech Republic, who was put to death for the faith. It really dates the beginning of the Protestant Reformation proper, as we might say, to the night of October 30th, or the morning of October 31st, 1517. As many of you will know, you don't know the exact hour, and that's why I say it may have been the evening of late night of October 30th or the early morning of October 31, 1517. A very brave man, a very burdened man, Martin Luther, nailed 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And in the providence of God, the printing press had just been invented, and so what he intended as a local protest against false doctrine in the church and against the corruption of the church his theses were quickly published and spread like wildfire and God blessed his brave stand there are by way of introduction then tonight three matters which bring us to this portion of God's word and first of all I want to speak about a great movement we come to the reformation as Protestants we need to be careful how we speak about it we are not let us be clear we are not celebrating a division in the visible church. What we are celebrating is the recovery of the gospel of God's free grace. And what happened in the 16th century especially was what we might call a revival on the one hand. It was a powerful movement of God's spirit so that people were energized afresh by the truth of God's word. And as God, by his spirit, illuminated people's minds so that they could see the truths of God's word and make a grand comparison between the word of God and its teaching on the one hand and the practices and doctrines of the church on the other. The work of reform began in earnest as the Protestant reformers sought to bring the visible church back to the standards of the word of God. And if you look at a document such as the Heidelberg Catechism, for instance, you will see what the two great areas of dispute were. On the one hand, there was uh, the doctrine of justification. And the critical question once posed in the book of Job, how can a man be right with God? Is he right with God on the one hand because of my work? And the work of Christ. My work topping up the work of Christ so that I can be found ultimately in heaven. Well, if you add to the work of Christ, of course, you subtract from it because what you are implicitly saying is that Christ's work is insufficient to save a soul to the uttermost. And then also, if you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, published in 1563, you'll find the other great debate of that era over what we call the Lord's Supper, what was then known and is known in Catholic circles as the Mass. What is the presence of Christ in the sacrament? Is the presence of Christ seen in transubstantiation where literally the wafer turns into the body and the wine turns into the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it what Martin Luther called consubstantiation where Christ is in, with, or under the bread? John Calvin and others taught it's not so much that Christ comes down from heaven, 
and is present in the supper, but rather when we partake by faith, we are taken up to heaven and there we feed upon the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and draw from him the power that we need to live godly lives in this world. So it was a great movement. We are here in no small part tonight because of God's mighty movement there in the 16th century. But also then, secondly, by way of introduction, I want to speak about a great doctrine. And if you pay any attention to the conversations about this anniversary of the Reformation, know anything about the Reformation, your mind will go straight to the doctrine of justification. By the reformers said, no, we are justified in the sight of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that was a great advance of the 16th century. And many people came to an assurance of their salvation as they realized that their trust is found, their hope is found in Christ alone. But you see, that was such precious ground that was won by the reformers that they really fixed their eyes upon justification. And they needed to. They were very afraid that the advances of the Reformation would be lost sight of. And so after the Reformers, there came those, even within Protestant circles in the uh, 17th century, who gradually and subtly and perhaps unwittingly sought to pull back from the reliance upon Christ alone for our justification before God. And so the followers of the reformers once more fixated upon justification because they did not want to lose ground that had been gained at the reformation one of the byproducts of that valid concern was that there was not sufficient attention to the doctrine of adoption as one writer has put it they rested tired from their labors and they did not go on to develop the doctrine of adoption as they had done the doctrine of justification. But we are learning that as we go back into history, we find that John Calvin probably had the finest understanding of the doctrine of adoption, quite possibly in the history of the church outside the Apostle Paul. And one of the fruits of that understanding is that 80 years or so later, when there was a great assembly in London called the Westminster Assembly, and they produced documents with which you as Presbyterians, we as Presbyterians, are very familiar. Westminster Standards, specifically the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. We spoke responsibly from those this morning. And the Westminster Confession of Faith was the first confession in the history of the church to include a chapter on adoption. It's the shortest chapter in the confession, just 101 words. And although it's there, it could say so much more, and it could say so much more in a better way than it does. But we are thankful that as Presbyterians, this is part of our heritage. That when we think about our salvation, we are thinking not simply about the fact that we are justified in the sight of God, but we are thankful also 
that we have been adopted into the family of God. If you have read any popular books on the doctrine of adoption, you will have come across this quotation by Dr. James Packer. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. A great movement, a great doctrine. And that brings us thirdly by way of introduction to a great letter. You see, at the heart of the Reformation was a recovery of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And two of Paul's letters in particular became massively important. On the one hand, there was Paul's letter to the Romans, and then on the other hand, there was Paul's letter to the Galatians. In fact, so important was this letter to Martin Luther that he called it his Katie. He named it after his wife because he saw the truth of the gospel of justification in this letter to the Galatians. But you see, Paul... Oh, Calvin rather went on and he not only saw the importance of the doctrine of justification in this letter but he also saw the importance of the doctrine of adoption well what's the context well Paul is writing in a hurry Galatians is not an easy book to read it's not an easy book to preach from and this is the reason why because he is so passionate about these Galatians who may be going back from the gospel losing sight of the gospel of free grace that he writes, as some of you young people are accustomed to writing during exam season. What's your handwriting like? Do you still use handwriting in exams? Certainly I did. And I know when the clock goes and you answer the question, you don't dot all the I's, you don't cross all the T's, you don't uh, take a picture on your cell phone of your writing and send it to dad and mum and say, how beautiful is my writing? You're just keen to get the information down. Get it to the examiner. And so Paul is very concerned about the Galatians here. He says, if anybody preaches any other gospel than that which I have preached, let him be accursed. And just in case you didn't get that the first time, he says it again. If anybody preaches any other gospel than that which I have preached, let him be accursed. So we come to this letter, and the basic problem is this. It's a nice problem to have. Thousands of people are becoming Christians in the Roman Empire. But they're coming into a church which historically is Jewish. And what are the Jews going to do with these Gentiles coming into the church? Are they just going to accept them on the basis of grace, faith in Christ alone? There was a party called the Judaizers who said, oh no, not so fast, not so fast. Okay, we'll accept these Gentiles into into our community, but they've got, got to become like Jews first. And so if they've not been circumcised, they need to be circumcised. And if they're not uh, honoring the Mosaic law, then that's what they need to do. And Paul could see right through this, and he says, listen... If that's the reasoning that you have, you are undermining the gospel. You are compromising the gospel because the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so if you say, well, you can come into the church 
So long as you become like us, then you are compromising the gospel. And I think this has very much importance for us in, as we might say today, growing the church. If we reach those who are very different from our own background, racially, ethnically, economically, let's make sure that when they come in through the doors, we don't say, well, you see, you have to become like us. Yes, we know that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've also got to do this and this and this and this to fit here in our church. No, says the Apostle Paul. The gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's a great equalizing truth. And so important was this truth to the Apostle Paul that according to Galatians 2, verses 14 through 16, he withstands Peter to the face because he sees that he's compromised in this principle. And so important was this principle that they set up the Council of Jerusalem and said, we need to speak to this issue. The gospel is on the line. Basically arising from the council, as you read in Acts 15, is this principle that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the only thing put upon the Gentile believers was that they were not insensitive to the Jews. And they were not living in contradiction of the gospel. And so understanding adoption then through faith alone is important for our understanding of the gospel. And it is important for our understanding of the church and the mission of the church. Well, against the background then of this great movement, this great doctrine, this great letter, then we come to chapter 3, verses 23 through 4, 7. And we notice then three aspects of adoption. We're coming to the heart of the letter, but incidentally, we're also coming to the heart of the doctrine. And the first thing we notice from verse 23 of chapter 3 onwards is the revealing of adoption. If you are accustomed to reading the popular treatments of the doctrine of adoption, you will often see reference to the fact that once we were orphans, but now we're adopted children of God. Now undoubtedly, ministering to orphans is an important truth in the scripture. Remember how Jesus said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Talking about the ministry of the Spirit. Remember how James, in his opening chapter, says, pure religion and undefiled is this. One of the things he mentions is care for the orphans. Feel the popular treatments into the doctrine of adoption really mislead us when they read orphanhood into what Paul says about adoption. Because Paul is building upon what was happening in Roman society, where somebody was a slave, but through a process of either adoptio or adrogatio could become a son. And so he's jumping off from that reality in the imperial society to speak in terms of what God has done in the history of his people, that they might be the adopted sons of God. And so he speaks as the context in which adoption is revealed of Jewish enslavement on the one hand and Gentile enslavement on the other. Notice with me verses 23 and 24 here of Jewish enslavement. 
Paul has previously spoken of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and how it pronounces a curse upon all. You can read of that in verses 10 through 13 of this chapter, this third chapter. But here he's speaking of the ceremonial law. Pastor Bob has been dealing with a lot of the ceremonies when he's been teaching about the tabernacle. And he says that the ceremonial law was for God's ancient people first like an imprisonment. Now before faith came, we were held under captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Such was the minutiae of the ceremonial law. Put yourself in the sandals of an ancient Israelite. You've got to keep to the letter of the law all these ceremonies. And Paul says it was like an imprisonment. And God was using the ceremonial law to create within Israel his son under age, a yearning for freedom. They longed to come out from under the shadows of the Mosaic law. And then, verse 24, ceremonial law was like a guardian. The word is pedagogue, from which we get the word for teacher says the countless ceremonies were geared to the maturing of the ancient church. I put it like this to give you an illustration. Those of you who are parents know what it is like to raise a young child. And there is some element of danger. Say an open fire during the a camp, during the summer evening. And you want your young child late at night to feel the warmth of the fire, but you don't want the young child to be burned. And so you put a guard around the fire. And you say, if you go beyond the guards to the fire, you're going to be in trouble. And that's what it was like for Israel at Mount Sinai. God was inviting them to come near to fellowship with him, but because Israel was his young son, they had to stand so far off. And if so much as a beast broke through the cordon and went up the mountain, it was thrust through with a spear. Because God, as the guardian of his people, his young son Israel was educating his young son in the knowledge of the character of God. And what is more, as you turn over to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, you find that the ceremonial law was like a manager. And here Paul continues the thought of the previous chapter, verses 22 and 23. 23 and 24. Israel, you see, was heir to a great estate. But so long as Israel was underage, his life was managed, says Paul, until the date set by his father. I think of it in these terms. You know from the British Isles that we have a monarchy. And I know that uh, some Americans are very uh, enamored of following the monarchy. They will follow the movement of Prince William or Prince Harry. But you think of Prince William or Prince Harry when they're in school. They're heir to a great estate. And yet, says Paul here, in the opening verses of chapter 4, they're a little different from a slave. They have all these rules, do's and don'ts, while they're underage, so that they may be prepared when they come of age. And so there was this Jewish enslavement. The ceremonial law was like an imprisonment. It was like a guardianship. It was like a management. Until the time set by the Father. And then Israel comes 
of age in a new Israel. But the Jews weren't the only ones enslaved. The Gentiles were also enslaved. And here we have a hint of this in verses 25 through 29 and then in chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul writes, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, meaning the Jews, believing Jews. For in Christ Jesus, you, meaning Gentiles, are all sons of God through faith. In other words, he's hinting that not only were the Jews enslaved under the Old Testament, but the Gentiles who were pagans at the time were also enslaved. And that's what he comes back to in chapter 4 and verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. They were, says William Hendrickson, slaves to the products of their own wicked invention. See what the Apostle Paul is trying to do. He's trying to bring believing Jews and believing Gentiles together in the one church. And he says, listen, you have a common background. You Jews, you were enslaved before Christ came, before faith came. And you Gentiles were also enslaved, a very different form of enslavement, but you were enslaved. And it's in this context that adoption is revealed as the answer to our enslavement. And I want to say to you tonight, if you are outside the Lord Jesus Christ, enslavement is your state of life. And I want to say to you that enslavement is your state of life, whether you are religious, enslaved by respectable sins, or whether you are irreligious, enslaved by scandalous sins. Remember how Paul, and this is uh, an interpretation of Romans 7, of which I'm convinced, describes what I believe is his state as this massively religious Jew is moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And there he says in Romans 7:14, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Before the Holy Spirit came upon him, he boasted in his self-righteousness. He went to church, the equivalent, the synagogue 21 times a week. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, And that was his boast. But when the Holy Spirit began to move upon him, this was his recognition. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, if a man like the Apostle Paul could come to that deduction about himself prior to coming to Christ, how much more is it the case of those who are today's pagans? So it's in this context of enslavement that God reveals his adoption. And I do believe... That is why there is a backlash against the ethical beliefs and proclamations of the Christian church today. You see, things have slipped, haven't they? And a man in the Western society thinks that he is free when his freedom is a version of anarchy which has actually enslaved him. Well, then you tell the person who is enslaved, morally and ethically enslaved, and say, that's not freedom. Freedom is not freedom to sin, it's freedom from having to sin. And you tell him that the fun that he's having in sin is actually not liberating at all, it is enslavement. And that is why the counseling rooms are so full. Because people not defining it as sin think that all they need to do is get a little bit of wisdom. And they'll be able to manage their lives right. 
doesn't work that way. So I want to say to you tonight, if you're outside of Christ, you are enslaved. And the answer to your enslavement is the revealing of adoption. But then secondly, as we come to verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, we notice the receiving of adoption. Now faith has come. And with faith coming, a euphemism for Christ, so has freedom. The Jews are now liberated, believing Jews are now liberated from the ceremonial law. And the Gentiles or pagans who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are now liberated from their enslavement to anarchy. And the proof, says Paul, that there is no going back is seen in God. God is the answer. And so what does he say? Well, he speaks of God's timing. He speaks of God's generosity. He speaks of God's wisdom. He speaks of God's grace. And he says, we're not only free as believers in Christ, but we are adopted into his family. Well, let us say a little bit about these four factors. First of all, God's timing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Literally those words, or strictly those words, the fullness of the time has come. This is the date set by the Father. Here the emphasis is not so much upon the reasons why Jesus came when he did, so far as the uh, events going on in the Roman Empire. You think of the uh, communication, the roads, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and the ability of the gospel to go through the empire. That's not what he's thinking of here. He speaks about the fullness of the time. He's speaking of the fact that Christ came once the Old Testament revelation of the Messiah was complete. That Christ came once the faithful in Israel were ready for his coming. Remember how Simeon and Anna were in the temple waiting for, quote-unquote, the consolation of Israel. They were ready for faith to come. They were ready for the Christ to come. Christ came when the Gentiles needed a true emperor in whom they could hope. It's a wonderful saying which I love. I've shared it many times before. God is really early. He is never late. The fullness of the time. The date set by the Father. God's timing. Secondly, God's generosity. God sent forth his Son. Hitherto he had sent prophets, but now he sends his Son. And the words for sending here has the idea of sending out from. And we picture in our minds the Son of God in his divinity leaving the portals of heaven. And the next time we see him, he's this God-man. God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man, says Charles Wesley. He left his exalted state for a state of humiliation. As the church fathers put it, the Son of God became the Son of Man, that we, the sinful sons of men, might become the sons of God, God's great generosity. And then thirdly, God's wisdom, born of a woman, born under the law. Theologians ask, it's a valid question, was it absolutely necessary for Christ to come? Or did... God the Father, so to speak, have this array of options. And this is the plan that he opts for, to redeem a people and to adopt a people for himself. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 21, I think it is pretty clear that this was absolutely necessary that Christ be born of a woman, born under the law. If there was a law by which we could be made righteous, then righteousness would have been by the law. But 
the example is this, that there is not a law. And so it is absolutely necessary that this Son of God, as he leaves the portals of heaven, he appears as the God-man, born of a woman, born under the law. So that only by his righteous life can we be perfect in God's sight. And then, fourthly in verses 4 and 5, God's grace. Why did he come? To, or in order to, redeem those who are under the law. God's grace works backwards and forwards. It's all-encompassing. It works backwards. Christ redeems us from enslavement. He delivers us. It works forward so that we may become sons of God. The Father not only accepts Christ's redemption of us on the basis of it, He grants us a full and a free adoption into his family. I can guarantee that if there's anybody here who has adopted a loved one, it cost you an arm and a leg. But here we have a full and a free adoption into the family. And so take notice of this wonderful word in verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Are you feeling enslaved tonight? Are you feeling trapped? Are you feeling overcome by the confinement of sin? in your life well the word of God comes to you tonight and says all you need to do in inverted commas is receive this adoption have you ever tried to give a gift to somebody you want to try and pay you back you want to try and do something to make up for the generosity and you turn around after a while and you say just take it just take it. I want to say to you tonight, if you're outside of Christ, that's just, this is what God the Father is saying to you. Just take it. Receive it. Come with your empty hands. Not simply to receive, as in justification, the righteousness of Christ and his atoning death on your behalf, but this wonderful gift of adoption. So that you are not simply some freed slave who doesn't know what to do with this freedom, but you are now embraced into the family, the household of God. And God speaks to you tonight and says, just receive it. And so that brings us on thirdly, verses 6 and 7, to the realizing of adoption. Those who truly are adopted realize it in three ways. First of all, we possess the status of a son, says Paul in the opening words of verse 6, because you are sons. You see, we celebrate in our adoption not only what Christ does for us, but as Pastor Bob was saying last Lord's Day morning, what the Spirit does in us. What does the Spirit do? He inspires faith. And what does the faith do? The faith enables us to cling hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why John Calvin called the Holy Spirit the bond of our union. 
See, we are safe as the sons of God, not because we are clinging onto Christ, but the Holy Spirit has inspired faith in us, unites us to the Christ who is clinging onto us. And so even though we might feel that our cling is so weak, his clinging onto us is not. So we have this wonderful truth here that we are sons in the Son. You say, well, is not Paul then being misogynistic here? Why is it all about sonship and not also about daughterhood? Well, we need to understand the context in which he's speaking. He's speaking in the context of the Roman Empire where it was sons who were adopted from slavery. But you see, there's also a wonderful play on words here. The word for son in Greek is huios. The word for adoption is huiothesia. You can get it even in English. See, there's a play on words. And he's saying in adoption, there's this wonderful acceptance. And the acceptance is this. In the son, huios, we know huiothesia. And he speaks then of the fact that in Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves. We are sons. And the amazing thing then is in the context of what we've already considered, this is not the sonship of infanthood. Now in this new covenant era, we have entered through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ into a sonship which has come of age. You say again, if you are reading books on adoption and you see a wonderful little picture on the front of a father with little children. That's not what Paul has in mind here. He has in mind of us entering into a sonship which has come of age. When my father died in 2015, one of the most precious pictures I have is not of him carrying me as an infant. It's of standing next to him as a troubled 19-year-old, wondering what life was all about, wondering what God would have me do with my life, and to see him standing next to me. That's a picture, a mature sonship. We possess the status of a son. And then secondly, we possess the spirit of the son. God has sent the spirit of his son, crying, Abba, Father. The possession of the spirit is evidence that we are sons of God. And the spirit does several things. First of all, the spirit empowers us. You see, here's a person who's been enslaved. And now, because Christ has died for this person, and because the Spirit indwells this person, we now have the ability, by the Spirit, to call God our Father. And so you notice in the first place here, it is the Spirit of His Son crying, Abba, Father. It's as if the Holy Spirit puts upon the lips of the Son or daughter of God the language of fatherhood. Before, previously, if we spoke about God, it was in some strange, alien way. He's God out there. He's the ultimate being in the universe. And then, 
through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now are able to call God Father. And this is one of the blessings of being indwelt by the Spirit. Another blessing of being indwelt by the Spirit is that we are assured of the Father's love. What does the Spirit do? He cries out. And if you compare what's going on here then in Galatians 4 with what goes on in Romans 8, you notice the progression of the ministry of the Spirit in the life of the adopted. Here it's the Spirit crying out as he teaches us to call God Father. But when you get to Romans 8, it's we who cry out, no longer possessing the spirit of bondage or slavery, again to fear, but now possessing the spirit of adoption. So by we cry out. You see what the Spirit's doing? And this is why it blows my mind. But we in our reformed circles often say that prayer is difficult. We are indwelt, as Pastor Bob was saying, the spirit of the Son. He empowers us. He assures us. And what is more, he unites us with believers who are very different from ourselves. You notice what we pray. Abba, Father. That prayer is only found three times in the New Testament. The first time it's found is on the lips of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And then twice when it comes to the doctrine of adoption, Paul speaks of us praying First, by means of the Spirit, here in Galatians 4, Abba, Father. Then in Romans 8, Abba, Father. What's the point? Well, Abba is the Aramaic. Father, the Greek, Pater. Why are two languages put together in this prayer? The reason is this. Paul is trying to say to these Galatians, listen, there may be in your midst Gentiles who come from pagan background and Jews from very religious background. But when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are on equal ground. There is no one more adopted than another. There is no one more justified than another. And you come together at the throne of grace. And some of you might be saying, Abba. And some of you might be saying, Pater. Because the Christ who brings us near to God brings us near to one another. And it is for that reason then. Segregation within the Christian church is such a contradiction of the gospel. And so thirdly then, the inheritance of a son, verse 7. The amazing thing about coming into the father's inheritance is that we come into the inheritance of somebody who never dies. He is the ancient of days. And it is the father saying to his people, his family, listen, I will never die. I never grow old. I never grow weak. There is never a role reversal whereby I become dependent upon you. And there is never going to come a day because I have left the scene that you get parceled out this inheritance. But he says, I am waiting for you at the end of the age 
and I'm going to be as alive then as I am alive now. And my delight will be to see my sons and my daughters wallowing, rejoicing in the inheritance. Well, you say, that's, that's very nice. That's very nice. But what actually is the inheritance? I want to know. And if you turn to Romans 4.13, you find that Abraham was made an heir. Paul writes there, he was made an heir of the world. And if you then turn forward to Romans 8, Paul writing to those who are going to be ignited in Nero's garden parties, those who are already suffering for the faith, those who are going to be killed for the faith, and what does he say? He says, the terminus of our hope is not when you die, you go to heaven. That's, that's wonderful for the believer. But the terminus of New Testament hope is that Jesus is coming again. The, the renewal of this earth that he spoke of in Matthew 19, 28 is going to become a reality. And on that day when Jesus Christ becomes, the adopted are going to enter into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And this is going to be the climax of their adoption, the redemption of their bodies. And the wonderful thing is this, brother and sister, that we are going to be psychosomatically whole on a new earth, as tangible as the scene in which we're found tonight, only without sin, without separation, without sorrow, without affliction, without crying, without death. No funeral parlors, no hospitals. Our inheritance with Christ is a new earth to come. I want to ask us as we close then tonight, have you received your adoption? If you're outside of Christ, I want to say again, that's all you've got to do, in inverted commas, is receive it. God is saying to you, take it. Take it. And if we have received the adoption, then it is ours to do all we can to safeguard the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ to understand that our freedom is not to sin it's a freedom from having to sin and it is a freedom to pursue fellowship with our God and Father in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit well may God bless these thoughts let us pray our Father in heaven we thank you for our adoption by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would follow your word with your blessing. We pray for any who are sold under sin this night, that they would know that freedom in Christ through the receipt of a free and a full adoption. Father, we pray for those of us who are your adopted sons and daughters. Pray, O oh God, that we would so safeguard that blessed privilege 
that we would come to know increasingly the liberty, the confidence, the freedom in Jesus Christ, our elder brother. Follow your word with your blessing then and help us as we leave this place to go out into the mission field to declare to those sold under sin that there's a wonderful privilege of adoption in Jesus Christ. Glorify your own name then, we pray. We'll give you the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all the people said, Amen.